You're listening to By the Well, a lectionary-based podcast for preachers recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri people. Welcome to By the Well. I'm Sean Winter. And I'm Robin Whitaker. This is Epiphany 4, and the readings Sean and I will discuss today are Micah 6, verses 1 to 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 31, and the Gospel reading is Matthew 5, 1 to 12. So let's begin with Micah Sean, one of the little prophets or the minor prophets. That's right. We don't know much about this book or text or prophet, but what do we know? <laughs> Well, we know that it's a collection of prophetic oracles, um, largely relating, it seems, to the particular circumstances of the 8th century. So Micah kind of sits there with Amos and with Hosea and those uh, 8th century prophets. Um, We know that this was a time of uh, significant contrasts in the life of uh, Israel and Judah, particularly in Israel, um, where we know that um, the uh, Assyrian Empire was kind of looming near at hand um, and eventually uh, conquered um, the Northern Kingdom. Um, But also a time um, during the reign of kings like Ahaz and Hezekiah, we think a time of kind of fairly significant um, economic prosperity, uh, a growing gap between rich and poor. Mm. Um, Amos very clearly speaks oracles into those contexts, but I think we see some of that reflected also in the prophetic oracles of Micah, that kind of situation of social and economic injustice just just around the corner of um, yeah. uh, you know, most villages and cities of uh, Israelite life. Yeah, that's right. And then questions about how that relates to cultic practice and religious life. That's right. Yeah. And then, then then this question of the, the, the possible threat of idolatrous cultic practice and what it means, therefore, to be loyal to Israel's God, yeah. Yahweh, in, in the context. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is a chapter which I think is most famous for its conclusion um, <laughs> yes. in terms of verse 8, which kind of gets detached off and used as a bit of a, a, a mantra. But overall, what what kind of prophetic... Um, oracle are we dealing with um, in the in the section as a whole? Well, we start off with um, something that's very poetic kind of language and with really a courtroom setting. Yeah. So we've got this language of a case, you know, plead your case before the mountains, let the hills hear your voice. Um, there's a there's a controversy, controversy kind of set up um, between God and the people. And it's really unclear whether God's kind of the defendant or the plaintiff right. or, you know, uh, quite what's involved here. But there's some contention at play. Yeah. But God and the people are kind of in the courtroom together, aren't they? And, yeah. And uh, I think there's a um, – I, I was taught good old form critical work. I was taught this was a reeve oracle. The word oh. reeve is, is the word translated controversy. Okay. And it's the idea of God contending against God's people in some kind of direct – um, accusatory or um, yeah. adjudicatory context, like a law court. So, yeah, which pe- people might know that maybe from Job type situations, yeah. but we get it in other biblical poetry too. And again, this appeal to mountains, like to nature itself, to kind of overhear. Absolutely. The first word here is really important. Um, here, it's the Shema word, so it's the one we get, you know, at the beginning of the. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Yep. So there's a lot of very attention grabbing language. Yep. yep. Um, at play. And we get a few shifts in the discourse, I think. We've got the first couple of verses kind of set up that law court scene. Verse three, we start to get um, God's voice. It's pleading. I mean, it's quite unusual and quite intimate in some ways, this pleading of the divine, my people, what have I done to you? That's right. 
um, that you testify against me. So this sense that maybe the people are complaining or, again, um, some tension in the relationship here. And then we get the rehearsal of uh, salvation history, effectively. Yeah. The idea that um, in order to make sense of this particular controversy, you need to go back in time and ask, well, what to what story does this particular set of current circumstances belong? And mm. um, what we have here is an evocation of the Exodus traditions, again, a very strong uh, prophetic motif in a number of the prophets um, and also a recognition of the importance of the figure of Moses which is a really interesting uh, particular mm. point of um, reference that that Moses as the lawgiver as the prophet um, uh, the kind of archetypal prophet in Israel's common life um, it's almost as if to say well if you're you know, if you were taking Moses seriously, then we wouldn't be in this um, pickle or we wouldn't be in this kind of controversy or confrontation that we're in. That's right. Um, yeah, and I mean, again, this is typically biblical kind of the recalling of the actions of God, but this time in the voice of God. Yeah. And then again, we get this shift in verse 6, really, with what shall I come before the Lord? And it's not um, immediately clear who who is speaking and who the I is. Yeah. Uh, perhaps the prophet speaking sort of, rhetorically for the people you know it's really a with what shall we come before the lord um and then this this reference really to what are the you know faithful religious life of the people so i i think there's a danger in the christian tradition that we've read because we jump ahead to the you know what does the lord demand of you uh verse eight um we've seen it as a rejection of the sacrificial system i don't think it is that um, but it's saying that a sacrificial occultic system, I mean, in, in maybe the modern analogy is going to church on Sunday, yep. but living unethically Monday to Saturday yep. doesn't cut it. Absolutely. So, um, I mean, the best way of thinking about this, I think, is in the, the covenantal terms of ancient Israelite religion. Um, the covenant is a relationship of mutual and reciprocal obligation. So if that um, relationship between God and God's people is somehow restored through this um, controversy, then the immediate question is, well, what what does Israel do as restitution? What what is What is Israel's true obligation to God? And the answer comes uh, in a way that orients them towards initially the cultic practices um, with yep. this kind of hyper-exaggerated, you know, yes. how, how, quite how many rams do you need me to offer for me to make restitution? Yeah, that's right, um, thousands that's of right, them. That's right, exactly. Um, but the answer coming in verse 8 that um, that's all very well, but actually what counts is the thing beyond that, which is this uh, question of doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly um, with God. Yeah. Um, the language there in verse 8 is really interesting, isn't it? What about those it three words, justice, kindness, um, walking humbly with God? What, well, do we, what can we say about well, what those words mean? The justice one we're going to get as often as righteousness in the New Testament because in, in Greek that becomes the same thing. But, I mean, I would emphasize there it's the doing of justice. That's right. Right? Yeah. It, it's an active verb. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it requires action. It's not just an article, yeah. uh, you know, attitude. It's not just believing in social justice as a general good. It's the doing of just acts. Yep. The loving kindness is this chesed word, yeah. which is everywhere in the Bible. Um, you know, again, often sometimes translated mercy. That is a bit more attitudinal, I think, about the it's the atti- primary attitude of God towards the people. That's right. So it's about um, kind of reflecting. 
reflecting God's relationship with um, with humanity and particularly with Israel. Mm. So God's covenant love, a God who is um, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, um, that, that kind yeah. of notion is then to be reflected in the way in which we treat other people. Exactly. And the walking humbly, uh, humbly is not too bad. Robert Alter suggests we might even um, translate this something like walking reverently. Yep. Yeah, okay. Um, so with a with a posture of humility, you yeah. know, in terms of, and again, I think we see this in the voices in this text where God addresses the people directly, but the people don't address God back directly. Right. And that would reflect classic sort of kingship, you know, you, you don't look directly at the king, you bow before the king, you, you would wait for the king to speak to you. I think, you know, that that's a part of showing reverence to God and we see it in the way this this passage is voiced that the people don't yell back at God right. um, it comes through the prophet in this sort of and and so the walking humbly I, I think is about your your attitude attitude towards the divine so we've got do justice to other people we've yep. got something that's about which is the classic you know in the New Testament this will be love God and love your neighbor yep yep very Jewish yep. way of summing up the law it's an attitude towards fellow humans. It's about an attitude that reflects God's own love towards the people and then it's about our attitude in terms of how we, how we are with God. That's right. So it's, it's not just walk humbly with God, it's walk humbly with your God, which is a kind of abbreviated allusion to that covenant relationship. Exactly. Um, you will be my people, I will be your your God. So overall, this passage in Micah, I mean, I, I wonder why um, it kind of gets located in the season of Epiphany here, but to the extent that the season of Epiphany um, does have these motifs of kind of what worship looks like or what, what, what it mm. means to offer worship, um, running through it, um, taking its cue, of course, from the story of the Magi and the bringing of the gifts and the offering yeah. of worship to the Christ child. Um, I think it's a fitting passage. It asks this question about, okay, well, if we're in this relationship with God, what is the nature of our obligation? Is it simply located in you know, what we happen to do in this season of the liturgical year? Or is it something more um, wholesale about the orientation of our lives in relationship to each other and to God? Yeah. And it's clearly definitely that latter. So there's, you know, a whole sermon to be preached in that. There you go. So um, verse 8, fantastic, but try and set it in the context yeah. of uh, the, the oracle as a whole. Exactly. So let's move on to um, 1 Corinthians. Uh, so this is the third week running on 1 Corinthians. And I'm going to be very cheeky, Robin. I'm going to ask you to start by saying oh. something about what you kind of spot or notice as Paul starts to talk about the message of the cross in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and following. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, this is, to me, the heart of this passage is where we get about halfway through where he starts talking about Christ crucified as this stumbling block. So this great shame, um, and the crucifixion was a shameful public death by the state, um, and, and I think this might reflect a historical reality. I don't know what you think about that, Sean, but... Um, that for many Christians and particularly in the process of trying to convert and bring others into the faith, this was a stumbling block. Like the fact that, well, God, if this is God's son and God's Messiah, why on earth did he die on a cross? That that seems to be completely antithetical to the whole enterprise, which is Paul's point. I mean, this is clever rhetoric. Mm. He's using the language of foolishness. Yep. Um and will sort of claim that for Christians, even though there's nothing particularly foolish about what Paul's doing here. Um 
And he's contrasting, I think, the wisdom of God with the wisdom of humans That's right. to get there. That's right. So you get this notion that there's almost a kind of anti-rhetoric at play here, that it, it takes the conventional categories by means of which we establish um, you know, what is true, what is important, what, what might be persuasive or attractive mm. in the world. And we Paul, Paul inverts it so that the very statement that it's foolishness becomes in itself kind of attractive i mean there's this yeah. weird sense in which the, the 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 kind of moral conviction with which paul does some of this category reorganization has a kind of intellectual and emotional power to it that mm. um that plays itself out in 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 christian history and uh, you know we have um you're absolutely right the message of a crucified messiah in the context of the ancient world is a is a perfect way of making no real sense to people yeah. at any kind of ordinary level, and I mean it really still doesn't. And right? still, I mean, absolutely, as is, soon as you, if you take if you take it seriously, just yeah. how dumb an idea that is. If yeah. you're trying to win adherence or gain a following or yeah. um, seek success, but the inversion, which Paul feels clearly compelled to do, this is what really interests me about mm. this passage. Other passages in Paul. The controlling criterion of the message of the crucified Messiah is clearly not a strategy that Paul has adopted out of, out of convenience or out of any sense of kind of existing rationality or um, within mm. within an existing cultural category that he might have operated within, either within his own Judaism or as a citizen of the Roman Empire. Paul focuses on it because... It, 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 it is the pressing and demanding aspect of the Christian proclamation that you simply can't get around. Yeah. <laughs> so if you can't get around it... <laughs> you put it centre. You put it centre yeah. and you, you double down on it in a way that, yeah. that, that means that you then start to reassess everything else in the light of it. And exactly. this is where I think um, 1 Corinthians becomes really interesting. So let's just recognise, I mean, Paul starts to get pretty dense in the argumentation here. <laughs> yes. He starts to repeat himself, um, although, uh, and, and, and kind of allude to, you know, the difference between what Jews want and what Greeks look for, that we, we can't quite interpret specifically or kind of work out what he's referring to. No. But there are two things that I want to point out about the passage as a whole that I just find um, really uh, quite astonishing, particularly thinking that Paul is writing this, you know, 20 years or so after the events of the crucifixion. The, the first is that Paul takes the event of the crucifixion and he ascribes some kind of ultimate significance to it, not just in terms of history or what happened to Jesus, but in terms of what happens to God's relationship with the world. And mm. I think this comes through in um, an extraordinary saying in verses 27 and following, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, what is weak in the world to shame the strong, what is low and despised in the world, things that are not to reduce to nothing yeah. things that are. I mean, that's an extraordinary, that's a philosophical statement yeah. of with a profoundly kind of nihilistic, um, destructive bent. Um, mm. Everything that you thought you knew how it worked and what it was and how the world was ordered, all of that is brought to nothing by the event of the crucifixion of Jesus. And um, to the extent that this plays into Paul's 
kind of apocalyptic worldview yeah. that this is that this is the putting to death of everything um that uh, uh that everything every category by which we made sense of the world of god and of ourselves is somehow undone by the reality of this historical event yeah um i i think it's extraordinary that paul can phrase it in that kind of a way but the second thing that's extraordinary is he then moves out of that to then say which means that in your own relationships with each other in your own understanding of what counts what's important in your society um don't worry about whether you're powerful don't worry about whether you've of noble birth um don't uh, where you need to be looking for god at work where god's revelation is happening is in the low and the despised of this world um because if you go somewhere else and look for it um what you're really di- doing is trying to boast in your own achievements in the presence of god yeah. so the image of the crucified messiah is kind of held before the corinthians as something that reorients their worldview, their way of thinking and knowing, but then secondly reorients their understanding of what's important in their society and in their world. Yeah, I think I think that's right, and and it is. I mean, this is where Paul is a profound theologian, and I mean, you teach this more than I do, Sean. But you know, we see such a deep connection between his theology and then human and the ethics, ethics that flow out of it you know the the theological conviction that he's come to in making sense of the cross yep. that this is the way of god to choose the weak to work with the weak to be revealed in and amongst the weak and the low yep. has then these huge implications for the way we are in the world and who we give honor to and and this will you know, in Paul's theology, as you said a couple of weeks ago, we get a whole lot of ethical issues mm. played out later right. in Corinthians and in other parts of Paul's letters, um, where you, we're, we're going to see some typical kind of cultural norms flipped around. Yeah, and sometimes Paul does that really very radically, like the cultural norms are completely flipped. Sometimes he kind of says, well, it makes a bit, a bit of a difference over here. You know, I, I've always said that I think Paul's ethics are an attempt to work out <laughs> in his own context what the implications of this claim about the crucified Messiah means. Mm. Paul sometimes does that consistently and coherently. Sometimes he does it less consistently and less coherently. Yeah. Um, but what what what's at the centre of it, and I think what Paul bequeaths to ongoing Christian proclamation and reflection is the idea that if you have a gospel at which that, that doesn't have the event of the crucifixion at its centre, inevitably that gospel will somehow be disordered in deeply problematic ways. Yeah. Can I ask you a, a question, and this is hard to ask as a short question, but you used <laughs> the word apocalyptic before, and yeah. I was thinking that as you were talking, we yep. get these, you know, one of the ways we can see apocalyptic thought at play is we get these strong dualisms yep. and these contrasts. So yep. we've got, you know, the foolishness and the wise to those who are perishing versus those being saved, um, you know, these, you know, and it can almost feel a bit hyperbolic. It's yep. a them and us, this yep. age, the age to come. So... To what extent do we read this as the kind of radical reorienting you're speaking about? Yeah. And at what level do we go, this is Paul just being a bit yeah. grandiose? Over, over the top. Over the top. You know, like, yeah. Uh, well, I don't well, want to explain it away, no. but, uh, you know, yeah. So congratulations on walking headlong into the biggest debate <laughs> in contemporary Pauline studies. That's um, why I threw it at your feet, there, Sean. There you go. Um, <laughs> the, the way I think about it is this um, – so Paul's, I think what's at the core of Paul's gospel is this um, account of what God has done in Christ, which is so utterly contrary 
to anything that you might have expected. Mm. It, it like the, the, whatever you think the Jewish story of covenant and election is about, it doesn't end up with a Messiah on a cross. No, uh, there is no. no version of that story that Paul inherits that ends up there. There is no version of what it means to fulfill or to um, complete or pick up, um, you know, the best of Greco-Roman society that places the story of a crucified person yeah. at the center of that story. So the message of the crucifixion does come from outside of any pre-existing story for Paul, I think. Yeah, and that's the first thing that Paul wants to say at many, many, many points that in the end, um, this is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Mm. So it feels apocalyptic because it feels like something utterly surprising and new has been revealed. Mm. Mm. What Paul then does, though, is say, okay, in the light of that, well, of course there has been this Jewish story. So what difference does this make to the story that we've been telling ourselves as faithful Jews? Paul doesn't think it makes anyone a Christian. He thinks it makes, uh, it renders mm. the story of Israel a different kind of a story that moves towards a different kind that of story. That is reinterpreted in right. light of the Christ event. Yep. He'll, he'll then go out to um, Greco-Roman ethics and say, okay, in the light of what Christ has done, what, what, what do we do with these cultural and ethical traditions and philosophical traditions? And in his letters, he constantly works with them. So the apocalyptic thing is is really a way of saying that at the center of Paul's gospel there is this fundamentally new thing that is divisive um it it, it does set you it, it places you in a position where you continually need to reassess everything else yeah in the light of it and um that's uh, i think i don't think it's so much about past present and future although Paul works with those eschatological trajectories primarily i think it's about the revelation of God's righteousness, as Paul would say in Romans. And I, I think that's what does make it confronting still today. Absolutely. I think this is a, you know, we might be tempted to domesticate this or, or um, you know, play down the rhetoric, but it, it should confront us because it continues to confront the way that we look at power dynamics in our world, at who we give status and who we consider wise, you know, all of that, you know, so that reinterpretive work you're describing. Absolutely. Um, so come and study. Come and study Pauline theology with me in semester one next year at Pilgrim Theological College. We, we we work all of this out, and you'll have twelve weeks to you know <laughs> to, to thirty six hours of of the long answer to that. Because the most important thing is one of the things that it deconstructs is it deconstructs some of the things that Paul says elsewhere in his letters. Yeah, like because Paul isn't always fully consistent with ju- taking his his own assumptions and testing them against this fundamental disclosure no he's kind of working it out we sometimes see him working it out in action and then yeah that's right which makes it exciting the unit's called working out salvation semester one next year (laughs) let's move on to uh, the gospel text then to finish off so we're um in matthew and we've moved to the sermon on the mount Um, matthew 5 1 to 12 the beatitudes tell us a bit about the beatitudes rob well, I mean, the first thing to is to note where we are in Matthew's gospel, I think. So this is the year of Matthew, but, you know, with Christmas and other things, we've been a bit all over the place. Yep. Um, it does annoy me that the lectionary <laughs> does that, but that's a whole other conversation. So this is really the first kind of public thing Jesus does in his ministry in Matthew's gospel. 
And he, it is that he teaches and interprets the law. So there's a few clues here that are really important. He's up a mountain yep. and he sits down, he adopts this posture as a teacher and he begins to teach and we've got the Beatitudes today but what he teaches will go into interpreting the law. So we've got echoes of Moses yep. and we know Jesus as Moses is a key theme in Matthew um, as an interpreter of the law. Uh, we've got – and it's worth noticing just as a point of comparison, you know, in John's Gospel the first thing Jesus does – after calling disciples, is turns water into wine. It's a sign. In Mark, it's an exorcism. Mm-hmm. In Matthew, it's to teach. Yep. And it's the first of what will be five big sort of teaching speeches, if discourses in Matthew. Yep. But we should probably talk, Sean, about um, this blessed word. And I do not <laughs> like this translation. Um, they're beatitudes, so that the blessed are... Um, it might be worth saying there are psalms that follow this form, and usually in the psalms it's translated happy. Yep. So Psalm 1, happy are you who do whatever. Yep. Yep. Um, I, what, what do you – it's this makarios word. Mak- makarios. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I just have to say that I think the translation happy is – ju- awful. Is, well, because, it, <laughs> because our understanding of what happiness constitutes yep. or what generates happiness or what happiness looks like – is so uh, focused around, first of all, a kind of form of individuality, and secondly, around a form of external um, prosperity and or you know leisure or <laughs> mm. uh, like it's consumerist in its configuration. So, so the, the language of happiness simply doesn't translate in the same way. That the virtue of the language of being blessed is that at least it's sufficiently a religious word to remind us that this has something to do with our relationship with God and how God views us. So to say that someone is blessed is not to say that they have some internal sense of kind of happiness or being okay with the world. It's to say that God looks upon them with a certain kind of favour. And it's that that I think that is at the crucial heart of what the Beatitudes do because it, they, they serve to reorient the question of where does God's favour lie? Where does God's yep. salvation belong? Um, and the language, as you can see from um, verses 3, 4, and 5, and 6, uh, in fact, all the way through, I'm, I always have to compare them with the Lucan versions. Yeah. Um, what you have here is you have eschatological promises. Okay? Yes. So... Um, They will be. They will be. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, but they will be comforted. They will inherit the earth or probably better the land. They will be filled. They will receive mercy. So the Mm. idea is that even though present circumstances for these people looks horrible and rough, ultimately God's favour is oriented towards them and ultimately it's that favour that they will receive in a variety of different forms in relationship to their need. Yeah. I think it it helps to... um it might help preachers to compare these with Luke, yep. not to bring Luke into the sermon, but just to see what Matthew is doing is quite distinct. Luke, who I think knows Matthew and writes later, um, will make these less spiritual in a sense. So he will change blessed are, are the poor in spirit to blessed are you who are poor yep. and make it much more pointed and much more sort of grounded in almost physical reality. I think Matthew, the context here is introducing Jesus' teaching on the law is really important because I think a lot of these are the kind of attitudes – um, or postures in the world of, of the meek and lonely. So it, it does make sense to me in the lectionary that this ties both to the bit of Corinthians we just talked about and to Micah right? because it's about um, this covenantal relationship that reflects something of God. Yep. Um, particularly here I'm thinking of something like verse 7, blessed are the merciful. Um, you know, 
those who are merciful will see Jesus will interpret the law or reinterpret the law in ways that are sometimes far more demanding. Yeah. Um, but it's primarily about an attitude that is loving and honouring of others and sometimes that seem lax because it's more merciful, but it's human-centred. Absolutely. Um, oriented towards the importance and priority of life, for example, yes. in relation to the Sabbath law. Um, oriented to the possibility of some kind of restorative justice mm-hmm. or forgiveness. Um, oriented towards the integrity of a community. Um, and oriented in um, the central part of the Sermon on the Mount to the idea that one's relationship with God in prayer, in almsgiving, none of those things are being rejected or dismissed or negated. But the question is, how do you do them in such a way that they are oriented towards the obligation to love God and love neighbour in a distinctive kind of a way? And I think, um, you know, Matthew 5 at every point simply establishes the idea that Jesus didn't regard himself as undoing or unpicking anything about his Jewish faith. No. What, what he was basically saying is this faith works itself out in a community that understands that God's favour and God's promise is given to those who are poor and meek and merciful and pure in yeah, heart, etc. Et peacemakers and so on. Yeah, precisely. I, th- I think there's a few things preachers could do with this and one, one of it is, I mean, these can function as a word of comfort, um, you know, blessed are you who are yep. mourn. You, you could ponder and reflect on, on, on it as a word of comfort. But also, again, taking us back to Micah, if you're going to pick up that thread, um, for me these are kind of attitudinal ethics. Yep. That they're going to frame the entirety of how Jesus interprets, interprets the law yep. in ways that say what is our fundamental posture towards one another. Yep. Um, knowing that we too are the people who are sometimes reviled and hated and absolutely where the so ends. so um so the the teaching is oriented initially to the disciples in verse one it's very mm-hmm. clear these are discipleship ethics yep um and so of course the first thing is to ask is who who within the community of disciples fits into these categories yeah. right <laughs> that's yeah. your first level of obligation so Matthew has all this content later about you know being concerned for the least of these or yes um, yep. so I think that's absolutely right. Later on, of course, um, Matthew will tell us that the crowds kind of, as Jesus is teaching, come up the mountain and kind of overhear mm. this ethical instruction. So the, the capacity of a community of faith, a discipleship community, to um, take the Beatitudes seriously is actually a means of bearing witness, I think. And it's interesting yeah. that these verses are followed by that language of being salt of the earth or and, uh, a city on a hill. Yeah, exactly. That's, right. that's probably it for today. Thanks ever so much, Robin. Thanks. By the Well is brought to you by Pilgrim Theological College and the Uniting Church in Australia. It's produced by Adrian Jackson. Thanks for listening.